friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. Conversations with Consequences is part of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast, and you can listen by going to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts, or you can just go directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. As always on Conversations with Consequences, we have a great show lined up for you this week. We're going to start with Natasha Howe. She's the producer of the new film, Fatima, the movie. It'll be available for everyone to watch later on this month, but I was able to catch an advance screening here in Miami. Then we'll turn to a Dominican for a conversation on apparitions in general. We're going to talk about why and how Our Lady comes to us. And we'll be talking to Father Thomas Petrie. He's the dean at the Dominican House of Studies. Plus, Ashley McGuire on a big win for Catholic schools in Maryland as unions move to hold students hostage. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. A hundred years ago in 1917, three peasant children in Portugal were able to see Our Lady Fatima, who came to visit. She made a visitation. And with that, she pretty much changed the world for many, many people. Recently, a movie was made called Fatima. And I was able to go and see an advanced screening. And I've asked the producer of the movie, Natasha House, to come on and talk with us and tell us all about it. So, Natasha, welcome to Conversations with Consequences. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here talking to you. So, Natasha, I think it was three weeks ago that my sister-in-law and I loaded our minivan with little girls, and we went to Dolphin Stadium here in Miami, and we went to a drive-in situation. I hadn't been to a drive-in since I was a little girl. We went to the drive-in. We we drove right onto the stadium itself where the football players play, and of course, the children were so excited. They'd never seen anything like that, and it was a lovely event. They had screens up high all along the, I guess, where people watch football when they go to football. And it was just wonderful. It was a great event. Children were very moved by the movie. I was very moved. On the way home, we all said the rosary together because the children said we should say the rosary. And it was a wonderful experience. So I thank you for this movie that already had a great impact on my family. I'm so pleased to hear your your story of your experience at, my, at the Miami Drive-In. Um, this is, in fact, yes, a series of advanced screenings that we are conducting as you know, for promotion for the movie in advance of its official release, which is now August the 28th in theaters and on premium VOD. So we can actually rent the movie at home now as well. Um, and we have we're actually going into nine different cities throughout the United States to uh, to actually showcase the film for key Catholic influencers who are then able to go out and disseminate and spread the message of the film and to share their experiences of actually watching the movie in this very novel way. So yes, obviously we've had to respond um, to the current social condition and climate, and we decided. To to create this series of pop-up movie drive-ins. So we actually go into different major cities throughout the U.S. and often partner with the Archdiocese, sometimes actually screening on, on church land in the parking lots, and sometimes then also partnering with some of the larger institutions and organizations of that city, such as at Miami Dolphin Stadium. We actually uh, conducted one at the L.A. Palladium uh, that was last Tuesday and also then sorry that was last uh, Saturday and then on Tuesday we actually did one in it was a private um, sort of health spa uh, it's Simi Valley at the Hummingbird Nest Ranch and that was just spectacular so it was a beautiful setting and we actually put up a, a screen that was four times the size of the screen that we usually put up and and we have these wonderful pre-shows that showcases the singing nuns and uh, obviously we, we actually have, we did work with Andrea Bocelli uh, who sings the, the original song on the Fatima movie and so we have making of uh, videos showing him actually in the production of that that soundtrack and and so we have this lovely pre-show screening and before in advance of actually showing the screening showing the, the screening of the movie in advance screening so it's like a little mini premiere it's their private events uh it's invitation only until we actually release um and so far I mean, we've, we've been getting between 
80 to 150 cars that actually come through to experience the movie in this drive-in formula. Um, and we've been met with just some wonderful tales of experience as people actually witness and experience the movie for the first time. And I know, you know, the, the story of Fatima itself is such a moving story with such a deeply resonant message. I mean, the meaning and message of Fatima itself is so profound and deep, you know, especially for today's world. And we have this incredible story of faith, hope, and love at a much needed time. Natasha, and, uh, when so, I was... Yes, we're delighted to put it into the world. When I was watching the movie, something that struck me very much, even though I've known the story of Fatima and I read a book about it some time ago, uh, and I say a daily rosary, I was watching the movie and I was struck by the sheer unlikelihood that this, um, this, these apparitions happening to these little children, I mean, the, the most insignificant of the, of the insignificant of the world, should find such a response in the hearts of not only the people of that time, but all the decades since. You know, in those days, there was no social media. There was barely telephones and telegraphs, I think, available to these people in, in the countryside of Portugal. How did it happen that it has to be, of course, the hand of God, but to watch it in action that these three little children have this experience with Our Lady and that this is translated into many, many thousands of people coming and experiencing that presence with them? You're absolutely right. Obviously, in 1917, there was nothing like social media as it is today. And, you know, it all started with little Jacinta. She was unable to keep this secret of of her experiences of, of you know, witnessing an apparition with the Blessed Mother. And she was so excited and so overwhelmed by the beauty of this lady from heaven that she couldn't contain herself. And she went home in, in pure excitement and told her parents. And this message then began to spread. And I think one of the, the primary reasons that the message spread so prolifically, particularly at that time, you know, it was virulent. It was you know, there was a new Republican government that had been instituted into Portugal in 1910, and and they were set on eliminating religion within two generations. And so, whilst it wasn't, you know, the the anti-clerical movement was perhaps not as violent as it was in Spain. You know, just preceding that time, you know, there was many churches that were being closed. It was very much a secular government that was instituted and um, you know there was a silencing of a religion so there was certain there was new parameters that were social parameters that were set that you were not allowed to to worship publicly and so you know this is very much Catholicism particularly was very much the lifeblood of the majority of the population at that time Portugal was still very much a, a rural nation state with you know with metropolitan centers and so you know it was really the lifeblood of its people. And so during this time, it was also World War I. Um, and so there was very much a shadow of the loss, you know, the horror of war whilst it was never fought in Portugal. There was a, you know, a generation of young men who were still conscripted and went to war. Mm-hmm. And so this, you know, Our Lady's apparitions played out during this time. Uh, also, interestingly, at the time of the, the Spanish flu. So, you know, the 1918 was when the, the flu epidemic uh, kind of ripped through Europe. So, you know, there, there was a lot of parallels to the experiences that we actually have today, and um, and so this you know this this lifeblood of of the, lo- the local population, this all of a sudden they started hearing that the Blessed Mother was appearing to these three children at this particular spot, and so pilgrims literally started arriving. The word spread from from people to people, you know, from family to family, and the, the pilgrims started arriving on foot to go and experience the children experiencing these apparitions right up until October the 13th where 70,000 people arrived on foot on donkeys, the occasional motor car at that time to, because there was a promised miracle our lady actually promised a miracle so that all people would see and believe 
And so October the 13th was the date of the last apparition and word spread. And this was met with, you know, a barrage of people arriving to to witness and experience this miracle. And, you know, they say it was 70,000. It could have been closer to 100,000. That's how they actually assess the number of people who congregated on this very rural landscape at that time and as you say without social media so there's i think there's there's uh you know this is a there's a real profound desire in people to hear this message this peace plan from heaven to have the hope that and the spiritual hope that that there, there's a presence of heaven heaven proclaimed itself on that day on October 13th, 1917. And there's thousands of eyewitnesses that testify to experiencing a similar experience to each other. Um, and I think this, this, this desire of the pilgrims to actually descend upon the site of the original site of the apparitions and miracle has perpetuated over the last 100 years, which is 103 years now, to the extent that on the, you know, the anniversary celebration of the centennial of the miracle and apparitions, there was a 9.8 million pilgrims who visited the shrine of Fatima in a six-month period. That's amazing, so, Natasha. You know, I really, it's phenomenal. It is phenomenal. And you know, this story of hope, this story of this peace plan from heaven, the meaning and message of Fatima, this story of hope has transcended and become, you know, a, a very, very apt for today. And I think that's very much the world that we're now putting this movie into is, is a world desperate for hope. If you're just joining us, this is Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I'm talking with Natasha Howe, the producer of the movie Fatima. Natasha, one thing that I really loved about the movie was the way it humanized um, Jacinta and Lu Lucia and, um, and her brother. And because, you know, I've seen pictures of them many times and they don't smile for the pictures. It, they look otherworldly in a sense uh, from a different time, but really they were just three little children and experiencing something tremendous and then trying to communicate it to adults who were either afraid or wanting to suppress it or simply overwhelmed by the strangeness of this experience that they were relating. So I loved watching the humanity of all of that. It's, you know, I, that's certainly a position of the film that differentiates us from possibly all of the other movies about Fatima. I was actually also the producer of The 13th Day, which was the, the latest feature film that was released about Fatima in 2009. We've created this Fatima movie to really develop the human story behind the story of the apparitions and the miracle. So part of our objective and, you know, our, our desire and plan was to create a work of art through which audiences and viewers, well, not only making it accessible to all people, um, you know, the media message of Fatima is for all of the world. It's not just for Catholics. And so we wanted to create a film that really spoke at an emotional level and was very accessible to all people. And, you know, by actually developing, you know, we, we researched each of the agents of this story very, very deeply and, and actually in communion with the Shrine of Fatima. We started working with the Shrine of Fatima very, very early on in the process who really understood what we were trying to do, which was ultimately to disseminate the meaning and message of Fatima to the wider world. And, you were also, you know, Natasha, we, you were very successful, I feel, in your portrayal of Our Lady, her face, the Thank gentleness, you. the gentleness of her countenance. She had, um, she, you could almost see rays of love coming from her face <laughs> towards the children, towards oh, the people yeah. that were suffering. That was amazing. You did such a great job there. Thank you. And again, it was, it was humanizing the Blessed Mother. Mm -hmm. So we decided to, rather than to represent the Blessed Mother as you know, a floating spirit necessarily, which is how she's actually described. She appears, Sister Lucia described her as appearing, you know, over, hovering over a home oak bush. And actually we, we decided that we also wanted to create a, you know, an, a character 
that could be that is thoroughly identifiable. So not only a woman of extreme natural beauty, but whose you know, grace of maternal love can be profoundly felt and also profoundly felt by the viewers and by the audience. So yes, literally, I mean, Joana Ribeiro, which is the, the Portuguese actress that we cast in the role of, of the Blessed Mother, not only is just she, she exhibits a, an earthly but also an ethereal beauty, but she, she was able to be the conduit of this intense love and she showed that to the children and we as the viewers who identify particularly with Lucia feel that too so thank you for recognizing that quality that that we really tried so hard to create it's really stayed with me I have to tell you Natasha and also with my children they who watched it they've they've mentioned to me a couple times how sometimes when they pray now they they imagine her face for our ladies because she really did have a maternal loveliness that maybe that's so beautiful Mm -hmm. that's wonderful Thank you. I, you know, I think that was part of the the other impulse was to actually we, we we cast quite deeply from the Portuguese community. You know, the the Portuguese community themselves. You know, this is the Fatima story is inherent to their heritage and you know, part of their own lifeblood too. And so we we wanted to ensure that the Blessed Mother actually appeared to these port you know children in Portugal who actually. They would recognize her instantaneously and she she is very portuguese in mm-hmm. in her looks and in her demeanor and so yes it, uh, that's so fantastic that your children actually imagine the blessed mother as joana rivero that's just beautiful thank you so much and i think also had a lot to do with the way she was represented in terms of things like the costume design we actually worked with an academy award-winning costume designer from italy who put deep, deep research and inspiration into the characterization of the Blessed Mother. Uh, As I said, she appears as a real woman and she may seem other timely or otherworldly because of her garb and the way that she is dressed and the way she presents herself. Um, But she really does, you know, she's so gentle and so beautiful. And I think particularly in the scene where we also witness and experience as the viewers her bleeding heart it's just so profoundly impactful mm-hmm. you actually feel that through her expression you know the the fact that the children or maybe it was just lucia was granted a vision of hell i've read that many times mm-hmm. but watching it in the movie made a great uh, impression on me because hell is sometimes a word that we use rather freely but it is a place mm. of complete desolation and fear and and loneliness and separation from god and 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 i really felt that that vision being granted to her was a great burden that she was asked to bear and for our for our sake mm. so that she could communicate the urgency of the message of peace of Our Lady. Correct, yes. Well, and it was, obviously the, the vision of hell was bestowed to both Jacinta Francisco and to Lucia and it, you know, it changed them forever. Mm-hmm. So within the actual story of Fatima from a, a deep, deeply cognitive level, you know, that third apparition, the July apparition where they were bestowed, the secret of Fatima told in three parts, that vision of hell is what changed and particularly center the most by which it was at that point that they really truly understood the level of suffering that that, that god willed upon them to, to for sinners to save the souls of sinners and it was at that point particularly for jacinta that well you can actually see it in photographic imagery at the time their faces their demeanors changed and it became much much more urgent for them to actually pray pray the rosary pray the rosary very much pray every day sacrifice themselves for sinners and literally every breathing moment of little jacinta's life became a sacrifice for her to actually offer that for the, for the saving of of sinners souls right up until the point of her death she was still praying and offering herself for that purpose that experience of hell for them was just so profound natasha movie is framed in such a way that we see lucia 
later on in life when she's already maybe in her 90s living in her convent and she's being visited by a person who wants to write about the apparition and he happens to be an atheist. Why did you think that that would be good to frame the story that way? We have made this film with the full knowledge of everything that occurred during the time and so we literally do have you know the full cognition of the full secret of Fatima, all of the visions, the revelations, the interpretations and you know we really wanted to create an opportunity for Sister Lucia to reflect on her experiences as a child, to make sense, to cognize them in an adult way, in an adult form. Um, and so we actually chose to, you know, to create a fictional character, Professor Nichols, to come in and interview Sister Lucia to necessarily ask her and to help her to reflect upon those experiences, but from a critical point of view, so that there's an interplay there between potentially those questions that many people have had, and be that the questions of the faithful and the not faithful, to interact with Sister Lucia to really try and understand. I mean, he actually goes in there on the pretext of understanding as to whether she's of sane mind, of sound mind. Mm -hmm to try and find out, you know, part of the trajectory of the book that he's writing, it's about this woman actually mad or not. And so, you know, he goes in there with a slightly different sensibility to the one that he leaves with after actually interviewing her, which is, you know, Sister Lucia comes across as with absolute sound mind and with a real capacity to reflect and respond in a very considered and educated way. And so it was really a narrative perspective to try try and interplay with all of those questions that we have had and that have been posed very seriously to Sister Lucia throughout her life. And so that was the purpose of it. But I think it really does offer a beautiful platform to really reflect back as adults from a considered point of view on all of those experiences. And also then to play out some of the key criticisms around, you know, the believability. It's like the doubt necessarily, it's not that there's no doubt as to whether this happened or didn't happen within the movie, but it really does come across as being the key dialectic through which we we then we we learn to understand and cognize this story at a much deeper level. I suppose from the atheist perspective or just the disbelieving perspective, the idea is that the children imagined it, that there was a popular desire for hope in a time of very great need, and then maybe all those seventy thousand people had a joint delusion when they saw the sun dance. Mm -hmm. But you know, I want to tell you a story. Two years ago, on May 13th, it was the 100th year anniversary of the apparition. My husband and I and the children joined a rosary at noon that was being given in our local public park. We stood in the center of the town and there were maybe 100 people and we said the rosary. And it started at noon. But wait, it gets better. So it started at noon and around 12.05, somebody said, look up. And we all looked up at the sun and there was a rainbow halo around the sun. And it was, it's something that's a very rare thing that happens. It does happen. It's called a halo. Mm -hmm. it, looked, it looked like a perfect rainbow that had done a complete circle around the sun. I have pictures of it. Everyone saw it. We could all see it. Of course, for us, it was a manifestation of Our Lady's presence for us in our rosary as, as we acknowledge the anniversary of Fatima. But I just wanted you to know that story because I know that you not only made the movie of Fatima, but you're also a person who lives it and breathes it. And, and it's, it's very important to you. Yes, oh, very much so. And well, actually, my birthday is also May the 13th. Really? So I'm actually born on the feast day of our lady. <laughs> I am, yes. This, very interestingly, this experience that, you, that you've mentioned, I would love to see those photos. Please send them to me. I've had the same experience. I've often been in Fatima for the feast day celebration. I was shooting the, the 13th day just outside of Fatima way back in 2006. And then obviously with this Fatima movie, we were there, it was actually October, we were there filming during the May, May celebrations too. And what you described is what I've also experienced on those May 13th days. So yes, to, I will also suggest that that's a, a manifestation. Thank you for sharing that. And you know, it's so interesting mm. because the people, those of us who were there, we were so moved and overcome by it. But when we try to communicate it to others, it lost its luster. And I was very sorry for them because yeah. I feel that our hearts have to be opened 
all the time to receive these messages of God's love and of Our Lady's love. And so easy to just be looking down at the floor and not looking up at the sun for for confirmation Absolutely. of how, how and, important and we are exactly, to them. Exactly. And to experience, acknowledge, and recognize the wonder that is God that does manifest himself through experience, those kind of visual experiences. And, you know, like I say, stop looking down at the ground and start looking up at the mm-hmm. wonder of the world because truly when you experience and see that and people are there are doubters everywhere and as soon as you actually reflect that kind of story to somebody who wasn't there to experience and witness it as you say it loses its luster and I think there's you know this is surely where faith begins this is where you know, this is the hope that we have as people of faith to actually experience and witness the miracle that is you know the miracles that are around us thank you I think that's just such a beautiful for sharing that beautiful story I think that's wonderful Natasha it's a it's a really wonderful movie I have to say it's beautifully acted Lucia is the most charming little girl you can imagine and also at the same time is able as an actress to reflect a real uh, interior life which I think is very difficult for an act, for a child actor or actress and uh, it was a wonderful movie I'm so glad I took my children I'm going to tweet on my Twitter I'm going to put a picture of the little girls that we brought sitting on the top of our minivan they just I've weren't... seen those photos oh have you <laughs> I have, yes. That's so wonderful. I didn't know they were they were your. They belong to you. That's just wonderful. Thank you. That's yes, we've been just having these most amazing experiences. And I just want to add, obviously having Andrea Bocelli sing the original song, perform the original yes. song. He himself has a very, very deep devotion to Our Lady. Um, and he too visited Fatima in 2018. And, uh, you know, we have been so incredibly blessed to bring together some of the world's most renowned and most incredibly talented stars and actors. And it's, we, it, we've created a work of art and we're so pleased that the world is actually getting to experience this now. And it is fully, it's an homage to Fatima. It's fully in honor of Our Lady. And, you know, we truly hope audiences will, if not flock to the theater, because if that's their preferred method, actually, you know, do, you can rent it at home. We listen to everybody. You can rent it at home now too through premium VOD on August the 28th. Go to FatimaTheMovie.com. And thank you so much, Natasha, for joining us. It was a true pleasure. The pleasure's all mine. Thank you so much. Next, we speak with Father Thomas Petrie about apparitions, plus Ashley McGuire on a big win for Catholic schools in Maryland as unions move to hold students hostage. Stay tuned right here on EWTN Radio. We'll be right back. Conversations with Consequences. We are very happy to follow up on our talk with Natasha House on Fatima the Movie with Dominican Father Thomas Petrie. He serves as the Dean of the Dominican House of Studies. Father, welcome to Conversations. It's always good to talk with you, Gracie. I really wanted to have you on because we had, you know, I watched the Fatima movie and I watched it with my daughter and some and my sister-in-law and other girls, and we were all so moved and so touched by the vision of Our Lady coming to to interact with us in a very human way. And it occurred to me that the whole idea of apparitions from the Virgin Mary is such a such a beautiful topic that it it deserves to be couched into in, in, in a bigger picture. Why does, Father, why does Our Lady come and visit us? Well, clearly everything the Our Lady does, the Blessed Mother does, is to bring us closer to her son. The very reason she has all the graces that she has, the Immaculate Conception, uh, the grace to have lived without committing any personal sin, the fullness of grace, the gifts of the Holy Spirit to the extreme, the gift of the Assumption body and soul into heaven all of these are directed to the fact that she is the mother of god to make her worthy for that office and that role and so everything she does now i think it's wonderful how after the resurrection after her assumption the resurrection of our lord and the assumption and her assumption that she's become in the world a sort of it's too little to say she's an ambassador for christ I mean, we're all kind of ambassadors for christ but she is still coming to this world to reveal the 
love and mercy of her son to bring them closer to her. Father, one of the things that uh, is so common to human experience and, and is such a strong, potent part of all of our experiences individually is the love of a mother. I mean, some people don't have that, sadly. But in general, there's something about mothers that they seem to rise above all other human interactions, that bond that a mother has with her child. And and I felt watching the Fatima movie that that is what opens men's, men's and women's hearts when they see these apparitions of the Virgin, that, that splendid thought of motherly love coming from heaven. I think that's absolutely right. And obviously the Lord knows this. God knows this. He created us this way. I mean, the primal relationship any person has is with a mother. Um, I mean, we come from our mothers, you know. I mean, uh, there's a lot of research out there that suggests that human males, that the gift of fatherhood is an achievement of the human species. And it's precisely because normally the father loves the mother, right? Mm -hmm. So that human children come to know their father as the one who loves their mother. Oh, I love that. I love that father. (laughs) the, The primal relationship of every human person is with the mother. Christ comes not as woman, but as a man. And so there still needs to be that other half of the diode, if you will, the other half of the dichotomy, which is the relationship of the person to the mother, to the woman. Something else that occurred to me is uh, in the case of Fatima, Our Lady comes in a, in, a, in a very special moment in human history, in the midst of World War One, in the beginning of a century which is going to try all of us, humanity, so deeply as, as that century did. And looking at other apparitions, for instance, one of my favorites, of course, Our Lady of Guadalupe, she comes in a moment in human history where cultures are meeting, where an entire continent has to be introduced to the love of God through the love of Jesus and, and the understanding that the Gospels give us of, of how God loves us. What about that? What about the way that these there, there are special focuses in, in human history where she comes in? I think that's exactly a good point, that she comes at these moments when God seems to be putting his finger on human history to point out certain things that are happening or will happen. And I don't think that this is actually necessarily known at the moment. I think what we're able to say about Fatima or Our Lady of Guadalupe today in 2020 we're only able to say in retrospect, right? Mm-hmm. Looking back, I don't know that the three shepherd children, they clearly were not aware of the profound things that were going to happen. Of course, they did see the vision of hell. They did see the visions of, you know, great war and the third secret of, of, of the great mountain of corpses and the Pope climbing the mountain of corpses. But they clearly did not entirely understand what all that meant. The Lord, I think, the, the Blessed Mother, the Lord allows the Blessed Mother to appear to us and to come to this world as a representative, an ambassador, if you will, at moments of great significance in order to call us to himself just when we need to do that the most. As you say, 1917, 1918, right at the beginning of one of the bloodiest, most evil centuries in human history. And 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 notice he always she always comes, she doesn't come to New York City or Washington, DC. You know, she she comes to little out of the nowhere, out of nowhere places. I mean, Fatima is is really was really just a village. I mean, the whole city now is really built up on the industry if you will, that's a horrible word to use, but an industry of the pilgrimage. You know, that city would not exist as it does, but for the fact that the Blessed Mother appeared there to those children. Another very moving thing about apparitions if of the of the Virgin Mary is the way that she rep- she presents herself to her children in, in the cultural guise that they can understand. That is so beautiful. To me, it's deeply moving. Okay, I find that very interesting. I've been thinking about that for the last, uh, you know, several days or weeks uh, on this because I've been doing some research just on the Blessed Mother for my own personal reasons. But this is interesting to me because she's assumed into heaven body and soul. So she has her own body. And it's, you know, she was a Jewish woman in the Middle East 2,000 years ago. That body assumed into heaven doesn't turn into some other ethnicity Mm. or some other thing. The body's important. Our bodies are important and she still has her body now it's a glorified body presumably like Christ's glorified body that we read in the Gospels, right? So St. Thomas Aquinas says that the glorified body is a body that is is particularly apt, has a certain aptitude, is made capable by God of receiving the graces 
perfectly from the soul. So the soul overflows into the glorified body, right? And so therefore the body participates in the graces of the soul, which is not the case in this life, which is why grace works in the soul, but not in the body. It's why we still grow old and have arthritis and all sorts of other things with the body in this life, okay? So she has all of that. So then why is it the case that it seems that she takes on at least in some of these apparitions, a different physical appearance, right? And as you say, sometimes it's in dress, but sometimes she actually does seem to appear to be the in the ethnicity of the seers. I think of Our Lady of Guadalupe, for instance, mm -hmm. right? The only thing I can, the way I have to think about this is I have to compare it to that scene in the garden after the resurrection when Martha doesn't recognize or when mary doesn't recognize the lord right so that there's something about the glorified body its relationship to the glorified soul that it can take on a different aspect and i think when you look at the blessed mother what is one of the primary graces of her life with christ it's exactly what we talked about earlier that she is kind of the mother of us all she's the mother of all of humanity because she is the mother of god and he has given her as our mother and so i think it's that grace in her that gets manifest in her glorified body in these appearances and these apparitions that then makes her body seem and appear to the witnesses in a way that they can immediately identify with and understand that this woman she is beautiful she is lovely and she loves me she is my mother. Oh, that's so pretty, Father. It is true. It's so moving the way she does that. And she makes those those perfect connections with really her very stupid little children that we are, right? <laughs> yes. Well, yes. And, and she was, of course, dealing with this even before the crucifixion. You know, St. Thomas, I mean, he's got, he's got a really high view of the Blessed Mother that she was without sin. And so she's living in a world with original sin. So she's aware of that. So you can, you got to imagine her just walking through her her life being saddened by the sinfulness of the people around her and that they don't see the glory of God and the goodness and love of God that she knows intuitively because of the graces she's been given. Well, Father, I don't know why the Empress of the Universe keeps visiting us, but we can only keep being thankful that she makes that she takes the time to come and encourage us and, and console us and bring her to Jesus. And thank you, Father, for taking time to come and be with us and explain to us about apparitions. Thank you, Gracie. It's always good to talk to you. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. I've asked my friend and colleague at the Catholic Association, Ashley McGuire, to join me to talk about what's on every parent's mind right now, what's going to happen in September. Thank you for joining me, Ashley. Hey, it's great to be back with you, Gracie. So, Ashley, you and I both have children in elementary school. You more than me at this point. And we are looking at the very real possibility that school may be completely virtual or some strange hybrid. And things are getting really complicated all across the country because what's happening is these fault lines are appearing between kids' experiences and parents' experiences with the public schools who are handling this pandemic very differently and the lockdown, and then parochial schools like the one my my children attend that are going at it a totally different way so how are you seeing what's happening out there well, I think it's pretty clear. I think you see the public schools shutting down, and I think that the blame for that can be placed squarely on the teachers' unions. And then you see private schools all trying really hard to open. And it's not just the well-off private schools. It's, In fact, if anything, I think it's the Catholic schools that have been leading the way. And Catholic schools get lumped in with all the independent schools, but they're really unique in that they spend substantially less money per pupil, while at the same time producing incredible result. And so the whole thing, I think, is sort of exploding the argument that this is about money because a lot of Catholic parochial schools, they operate at a loss and they're subsidized by their parishes and their dioceses and they cater especially to low-income children, middle-class working families. And they're the ones, by the way, that are especially hard hit by the distance learning. I mean, you have something like 25% of low-income kids don't even have internet in their houses. And so they're trying really hard 
to open. And I think they've done an extraordinary job of putting forward plans that are CDC compliant. And but now what we're starting to see is pushback even on that from local governments who are being jerked around by the unions to try to shut them down too in the name of equality. But we all know it's it's not about equality because those are the schools that are, are actually working to rectify inequality in education. Why do you think that the unions of the public school teachers would be interested in, in shutting down the local parochial and private religious schools? Because it's their competition. It's their competition both from an optics point of view, in the sense that it just makes the public schools and the teachers unions look bad. They're doing on a shoestring budget what the unions and the public schools are claiming they need billions of dollars to be able to do. But it's also their actual competition for students and enrollment and funding. And people are leaving in droves for private schools, especially for Catholic schools, because they are trying so hard to open in person, which is what we know the health experts have all said is the best thing for kids. And they're doing it, they're doing it safely. The public school teachers are not in any hurry, or I should say the unions, the unions of the public school teachers are not in any hurry to go back to school. In fact, they are holding their participation in the school year as hostage, really, to to fulfill some very strange political demands that don't seem to have anything to do with schooling and, and the job that they're supposed to be doing, educating our children. What about that? What kind of weird political demands are they making? In, in order to come back to school and teach? We've seen totally strange stuff like they won't teach in person until police departments are defunded, charter schools are shut down, or metrics and numbers that are potentially not realizable for a year or longer, like zero cases of COVID for a month. So it's sad. I think kids are being used as political pawns and it's exposing the teachers' unions for what they really are, which is a union of teachers that are protecting their own self-interest. And I'll just give an example of somebody I know who's in a teacher's union, and she's out there advocating, saying, we won't do any in-person learning until X, Y, or Z, insert crazy demands. But then she's in putting her own daughter in a private in a private pod. So it's, you know, the classic example of for me, but not for thee. Let me explain that pod concept in case our listeners don't know. So my sister-in-law is doing the same thing. Her second grader goes to public school in Virginia, actually, and she and four other moms have hired a teacher who's going to give private instruction to their children. And thank God they're able to do that. They have the money to do it and the space. But she showed me today what the public school was offering her child for a second grade education. It was starting at 8.30 in the morning, sitting in front of a computer. This is a second grade little girl sitting in front of a computer till 2 30 in the afternoon and hmm. her mom who works also and her father who are working from home they're supposed to keep her in front of a computer learning and and it's crazy it's i've second graders can't learn in front of a computer for eight hours for no, five hours at a time you know everybody's been wringing their hands about the rise of adhd and all these attention to deficit or disorders in kids and at the same time clutching their pearls about screen time and then all of a sudden, we're supposed to all be okay with kindergarten age boys. That's how old my son is. He's five. He's starting kindergarten. They're suggesting he should be on a screen for three plus hours a day. And these poor kids don't even know, they don't even understand the concept of mute and unmute. Mm-hmm. And little boys, even more than little girls, have a lot of trouble staying still. And they shouldn't have right. to stand still and stare at a screen at that age. My parochial school, for them, for us, because I feel that I'm a part of the school, it's an existential threat, the idea that we can't open. because, And we can't open in for personal instruction, in-person instruction, because children are sent to these parochial schools and parents scrimp and save and sacrifice to do this because they are getting a very a spectacular education, not just academically, but the whole child is taught. And you can't get that through a screen. So as the right. uh, the schools are really worried, and they should be, that if all they can offer, because the state is making them offer just a virtual education, enrollment's going to drop off, and they don't have a spigot of public tax money the way the public schools do, and they're going to have to close. 
Right. And I think, you know, the thing that can't be stressed enough is the fact that the Catholic schools do more to serve underprivileged children in this country than any other educational entity. 40% of them are in the inner city. Their tuition is less than half of the cost of other private education. Mm -hmm. And they manage to produce extraordinary results um, on shoestring budgets. And, you know, this idea that it's about privilege is totally false because Catholic schools, as we discussed, are largely the preference of low-income, middle-class families that are making extraordinary sacrifices to get their kids out of failing public schools. And that's exactly what they're doing now with this pandemic distance learning catastrophe, and the teachers' unions won't abide it. There was an article in the New York Times this week, and it was all about how in search of equity and fairness, if public schools can't open, then of course private schools shouldn't open because if all the children are going to be at the same level, well, then let's let's level everybody down, <laughs> which seemed to right. be the gist of this article. And I was just amazed because every time they said the word private school, they put prestigious private school in front of it. And I'm sorry that you can't. Uh, it's crazy to act like every little kid in a parochial school goes to Andover or one of those Tony prep schools in the Northeast. That's just not the reality of what Catholic schools do for American students. No, and in that same article, they referred to private schools as engines of inequality. And the irony is that it is the teachers' unions who are right in front of our faces acting as the engines of inequality by trying to, by driving policies that are actively seeking to close down the schools that are doing the work that public schools are supposed to, which is offering every single kid a chance, regardless of socioeconomic status, a chance through a good education to move forward in life. You're so right, Ashley. And all this talk that we hear now about inequality and, and racial disparities and every the best thing you can do for anybody is give them a great education. So thank you so much, Ashley, for joining me uh, and talking about uh, what's a really important subject to all of us, whether we have children in school or not. Yeah, well, thank you. And let's pray that um, Catholic, that Catholic school kids and, and really all kids have the chance to go back to school um, and, and learn in person. Amen. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday. Jesus will help the apostles, especially St. Peter, to overcome their primal fears. And he also wants to help us, too, go from fear to faith, to overcome our terror of failure, abandonment, struggle, sickness, pain, the past, the future, death, the possibility of hell, and anything and everything else, too. Let's put ourselves first in this dramatic scene, whose elements are recapitulated in some way or another in the life of every disciple. Since Jesus, we saw in last week's gospel, had just had everyone sit down in the green grass for the multiplication of loaves and fish. We know that it must have been mid-March to mid-April in the Holy Land, because the grass begins to get scorched by the sun at the end of April. That would mean sunset would have happened about 6 p.m., which is the time the apostles got into a boat to begin a journey across the top of the Sea of Galilee, which would have been about a five to six mile journey that should have taken a few hours. The storm began to rage, St. Matthew tells us, when they were in the middle of the sea. So about an hour or two along their trek, Jesus came to them in the fourth watch of the night the period stretching from 3 to 6 a.m., which meant that by that point they had been in the boat 9 to 12 hours, battling a ferocious storm, fatigued, soaking wet, and fearing for their life. Jesus was placidly praying on the mountain as they were struggling for hours not to drown to death. Why did Jesus wait so long as his friends were in peril? Brings us back to the other time they were afraid for their life in the sea when Jesus was asleep in the bow of the boat as they thought they were about to die. In both cases, it was to increase their faith. Jesus was introducing them to a central truth of the spiritual life, that in order to be able to abandon ourselves to God, 
we first must feel what it appear what it appears to be total abandonment by God. That's when we're able to make the leap, when all human means are exhausted, when even God seems absent, that we make the act of faith to believe in him even when we can't see or hear him. After hours of struggling for their lives, Jesus comes walking along the white caps of the churning sea. The first reaction was to think they were seeing a ghost. After all, no one had ever seen a man walk on water before, not to mention surf waves without a surfboard. There was also a superstition that there were monsters at the bottom of the Sea of Galilee, and likely that played into their alarm as well. But Jesus said to them across the howling winds, Take courage, I am, do not be afraid. There were words of confidence. There were words that could help assuage their fears and give them courage. We see the first fruit of that in St. Peter. Lord, if it is you, he said, bid me to come to you across the water. He first refers to the walking ghost as Lord, but then he qualifies it by saying, if it is you. He was hovering between belief and unbelief. But at the word of Jesus come, he did what he had been precisely trying to avoid over the previous seven to ten hours. He went overboard. The time fearing for his life made him that much more desirous of being with the Lord Jesus. He wanted to get to him as soon as he possibly could. The whole scene in some way summarizes the mystery of the Incarnation as Jesus comes across the stormy seas of our world walking toward us and we're called to get up from where we are to overcome our fears and insecurities and head out to meet him. Peter did. Lifted up temporarily by faith, Peter's density changed in a sense. He was lighter than water and capable of walking above it. But then something happened. St. Matthew tells us Peter took account of the winds. He took his eyes off of Jesus. He began to focus on the human impossibility of what he and Jesus were both doing. And then the downward force of gravity, corresponding to the downward glance of his heart, overcame him. He began to sink in the waves. Though an expert on that sea and a good swimmer, as we see, he swam a hundred yards after the resurrection to see Jesus on the shore of Galilee. He began to fear for his life. The words of Psalm 69 began to take on new meaning. Don't let me sink. Rescue me from the watery depths. Don't let the flood waters overwhelm me, nor the deep swallow me. In response to Peter's cry for help, the Lord reaches out to save him. The word is he gripped him in his arms. The storm was still raging. The winds were still blowing. The waves were swirling all around. The sea was still 140 feet deep. But Peter was safe. Jesus had saved him. We call Jesus Savior not just out of piety or because it's a nice title to give. We call him Savior because he has in fact saved us from the depths of sin, just like he saved Peter from the depth of water. Jesus' words to Peter are highly significant. He said, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? The verb translated to doubt here means to be of two minds. Peter was divided. Part of him believed, part of him doubted. Part of him trusted in Jesus. Part of him attributed more power to the wind and the waves. But we can't really half trust in God. That's what this whole exercise of faith in the Sea of Galilee was meant to train Peter and the others to grasp. Peter would be of two minds elsewhere as well. He would confess Jesus to be the Messiah and Son of God and then forbid him to suffer in order to fulfill his mission. He would swear during the Last Supper that he would never betray the Lord even if he should have to die for him. But then he would swear an oath denying him three times in the high priest's courtyard. The Lord was trying to help Peter to become of one mind, one heart, one soul in faith. The last part of this scene happens when Jesus, still carrying Peter, enters the boat. That's when the storm dies down, when Peter and Jesus are back in the boat that symbolizes the church as a whole. And it's there that they worship Jesus and called him not merely the Messiah, but the Son of God. The whole episode was a mystagogy of growth and faith. It was a difficult lesson for them to learn, but one communicated in a way they and the church with them have never been able to forget. Likewise, Jesus created us not to drown in fear or anxiety, but to live by faith, to immerse ourselves in the depth of his love, to adore him on land and on sea, to be strengthened by him and know that we've got nothing to fear because he's with us, even if we're in the midst of ferocious storms. Same Lord Jesus who walked on water to save and strengthen the faith of his beloved apostles comes to meet us Sunday at Mass. He wants us not to stay where we are in the pews of the nave, a word that comes from the Latin navis for boat, but jump overboard with trust to run to meet him. Like those in the boat, we will drop to our knees and adore him as the Son of God, asking for the grace never to take our eyes off of him, begging him for his help not to be of two minds, but of one mind and heart with him, imploring his assistance to remember that no matter what storms we face now or later, 
that we'll know that he's with us, seeking to grip and save us and help us grow in faithful union with him. God bless you all. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy and you go with our prayers. 